Welcome back to the Progress City Radio Hour as we are preparing to explore the vast vacation kingdom of the world. I am Michael Crawford with me as always, my brother Jeff, Jeff Crawford. How are things, Jeff? Uh, things are great. I'm excited. We're in the middle of this early stages of this celebration of Walt Disney World's 50th. You know, it's good if we can't be there. Let's celebrate it in style. But this is, I mean, this is some of the most, my favorite things. All time. Favorite things. Period. Exactly. Exactly. For those who may not have heard our last episode, although you should listen to our last episode, we're going to spend this year talking about the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, just bit by bit. This month, we are taking a look at the larger aspect of Walt Disney World, a little bit outside the theme park, we're talking about the vacation kingdom of the world. This was a big, big part of how Walt Disney World presented itself in its early years. And uh, as we were growing up, Jeff, this was kind of what they leaned on a lot in how they talked about the resort in their advertising and you know TV specials, things like that. That's right. I mean, I guess Disneyland, the castle park, was a known quantity. And what made it different in Florida was the all the other stuff. And, I mean, I have to say that all the, uh, the Seven Seas Lagoon, Bay Lake, these are my favorite parts, uh, even outside the park. I mean, I, I would say that's my favorite part of being on property. Yes, it, it's... Something that has really changed for me over time, uh, how I perceive it when you're a little kid, you just want to be in the theme park all the time. But now, a days, there's hardly anything better than being on one of those launches out on Bay Lake or being out on Seven Seas Lagoon. Uh, some of my fondest memories are of the aesthetic of the Polynesian in years mm -hmm. gone by. Yes. Uh, there are plenty of great little things, uh, little bits of history out there, as many as there are in the theme park of things gone by. So there's plenty for us to talk about, and I'm looking forward to getting right into it. Yes. I mean, as we said, it's kind of, it was a departure for Walt Disney Productions to move away to this bigger, bigger thing than just a theme park. Uh, the biggest was the introduction of the resorts to the menu of Disney offerings. And with resorts came all kinds of recreation, but this wasn't Disney's first foray into recreational offerings. After Disneyland opened, there were several ideas that popped around for smaller projects to follow it, from Riverboat Square in St. Louis to the ski resort in Mineral King. But one that would make it off the drawing boards and into reality was the Celebrity Sports Center in Denver, Colorado, which opened on September 17, 1960. Walt approached a group of stars to help invest in the project, and rounded up quite the crew, including Jack Benny, Bing Crosby, George Burns, and Gracie Allen, Charles Lofton, Burl Ives, Art Linkletter, John Payne, Spike Jones, and Jim and Marion Jordan, or Fibber McGee and Molly. Linkletter was somewhat of a personal friend of Walt's, and they worked together on the 1960 Squaw Valley Olympics. 
From the groundbreaking, some of the celebrities would join for a press conference with a great picture in the paper of Spike Jones playing his shoe as a violin with a fire poker as a bow and Jack Benny noodling at the piano with Walt getting in on the act and singing along. Michael, I've always heard this name drop for a long time, but, uh, man, looking at it, it was quite the place. Yeah, it was. This was one of those weird aspects of Disney history that I had never heard about until the internet came around and, you know, taught me about all the things that had existed before I was paying attention or even alive. And this is one of them. This was quite a facility. That lineup of celebrities is it's such an odd grouping of people. It really is. It's just, I just picture, you know, Walt hanging out with these people. But this facility was a real, I don't know, it's something that I wish was still around. I wish I could visit because it's oh, a gosh, real yeah. slice of mid-century fun. That's right. Center was designed as a groundbreaking indoor recreation facility for the fast-growing Denver area, with some popular options for the winter months. This project was proposed to Walt by his attorney, Lloyd Wright Sr., who claimed it would be the first of many to open around the country. It seemed like Walt was turning his mind already to the problems of society and how to fix them. He's not only looking for another place for parents and children to be able to have fun together like Disneyland, but in many remarks concerning the center, he states it offers a chance to give youth an interest in instruction in sports and various activities. The idle youth, Michael, that's the devil's playground. <laughs> that's right. He's, he's keeping them off the streets and in the pool, apparently. That's right. The facility opened as Celebrity Lanes and had 80 bowling lanes to choose from. I mean, that's 80 bowling lanes. <laughs> that's huge. With seating for tournament events, which it would sometimes host. At the time of its opening, it was the largest order of bowling equipment in history at $1.25 million worth of bowling equipment. That, that's a lot of pins. That's right. The center would also include a gigantic swimming pool, complete with five diving boards and nine swim lanes, the largest pool in Colorado. It was designed to be capable of hosting two swim events at the same time with stands to host as well. This pool is so large, in fact, that they would have small, fan-powered sailboat regattas in the late 70s, and from time to time, Goofy would get in and water ski, which is a thing always. Why is that such a thing? Yeah, I know. He's their go-to guy for water skiing, but I'm not sure why. That's right. But yeah, it's, uh, water skiing in a swimming pool. That's wild. Initial plans would call for the wall of the swimming pool to be retractable and open up to an outdoor pool deck and a removable skylight as well, but this would never come to pass. In the basement, and perhaps most exciting, there was a fun center. The uh, the father or mother, of you, if you will, of the, the one in the uh, contemporary, maybe. There was a fun center with three very large slot car racing tracks covering 13,000 square feet. Now, this is something I'd love to see. Yeah. This is what really sold me on this place, because... You know, when you first hear about it, it's like, oh, it's a bowling center. It's got a pool. That's nice. Then the first time I saw a picture of these slot car tracks, which are so big, you could probably fit a real car on them. They're so That's, huge. Yeah. They're oh, this would have been amazing. Yeah. It would have been nice to see it. And you can smell that like electric ozone yes. smell in the air. <laughs> oh, it must have been spectacular. Uh, ski ball and pinball were also mainstays, as was a game Pojo, 
which is some combination of billiards and mini golf. So, what? Yeah. Is that like Don Jot? I guess. Uh, in addition, there was a nursery, health salon, snack bar, shooting gallery, and some great restaurants through the years, headlined by the Hofbrau sit-down German restaurant. This looks like a real winner here. Yes. It is so, it is that mid-century Germanic Ratzkellery type deal, and it looks so great. Looks very nice. In addition to the Hofbrau, through the years there would be the Celebrity Room, the fine dining establishment, a Stouffer's restaurant, an Italian restaurant called Casa Donato, <laughs> and last but not least, which I just thought immediately of you, Michael, a restaurant lounge called Cart in Rib, where the folks about town, with an E, played dinner shows throughout the week. Uh, these restaurants had elaborate rockwork, indoor waterfalls, statuary, you name it. In the celebrity room, they even had a circular fire pit, which I'm always jealous of. But yeah, the cart and rib. Is this where fish and chicks comes from, Michael? It may have gotten it started. The cart and rib. It may have been a spinoff. The folks about town. We need to track <laughs> them down. I know. Oh, man. Uh, this sounds like heaven. This is it perfect. It really does. It does. Go do a slot car race, do a little bowling, have a little Head cart and rib. The cart and rib. But we are lucky enough to have a celebrity room menu here for the fine dining. Michael, what do you have? This is an incredibly difficult decision because apparently 1960 is my target demographic menu-wise, <laughs> judging from this. Uh, everything looks spectacular. Obviously, I need to start off with a tasty cocktail. As tempted as I am by Pat's special grasshopper, <laughs> which it says is subtle and sublime, uh, I can't really pass up the opportunity for 65 cent whiskey sours. Yeah, I mean, agreed. you can't, agreed. You can't yeah. beat that. Um, while everything from the complete dinner menu looks sublime, except for the frog's legs, which I found was an interesting offering, I think I'll go a la carte. I think I'll start with the deluxe shrimp cocktail. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, in honor of my beloved Liz Lemon, I'll order the Chateaubriand for two for one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a little spendy at $10.50, but worth it, I think, for the broiled mushrooms, French fried onion rings, garden fresh vegetables, en potato bordure, mm. not to mention uh, salad, rolls, choice of beverage, tea, milk, or coffee. Thank you very much. What a deal. Um, obviously, for dessert, I'm going for one of the celebrity-made pies. Um, yes. I'm hoping Der Bingle is in the pastry kitchen tonight for that. <laughs> well, uh, I think those are all great choices. Here's what I, I'm gonna I'm gonna join you on the whiskey sour. Yeah, um, I'm excited about the assorted relish tray that we're gonna get. Um, yes, that drew my eye as well. Um, but I'm gonna go out and try a marinated herring because I think that might be good for a little appetizer. And uh, after that, I'm going to enjoy uh, lobster dainties because uh, it's a specialty of the house. And uh, for my sides, I'm going to have cream whipped potatoes and cream slaw. Just get that extra cream in there. I might mm -hmm. even enjoy a, a glass of buttermilk with dinner because that's on the menu. And uh, I'm going to skip the molded salad with French dressing. And Oof. for dessert, I'm going to have an individual baked Alaska served to flame for $1. Oh man! Oh, with the celebrity and blend show. coffee. Yeah, the celebrity blend coffee because they make their own blend. Sounds pretty good. 
It is. I just want to, I really, I'm curious about the pies. I want to know what celebrities are making what pies. You know those pies pies got to be good. I mean, what about a Burl Ives made pie? Oh, yeah. That's got to oh, be Oh, man, good. he knows what's good. Yeah, he knows what's up. Oh, well, unfortunately, celebrities wanted out, mostly due to bad management uh, at the center. Disney took over the space outright in 1962. Disney would be a regular fixture at the by then named Celebrity Sports Center, with characters showing up from time to time, as well as Disney stars and Walt himself. In fact, for the 1962 opening of the Stouffer's Restaurant, Walt brought Haley Mills, Annette Funicello, and Jimmy Dodd to the proceedings. And since we love Dodd on the pod, uh, and I've come across a somewhat creepy radio interview from the time, I thought I'd play a little bit of it for us here. Hi, it's good to see you, Haley. And this is Bob Bob, I know Bob pretty well. That's the reason I went to rip him a little bit. Haley, about 100,000 Denverites are listening to us right now, and they were very anxious to hear you say something. How are you liking your Denver stay? Oh, I think I love it. I think it's smashing. <laughs> Where did you have dinner tonight? Um, we had dinner at Governor Mitchell Mitchell House. And Oh, I see. Uh, Very good. And it was marvelous. We met everyone, and they're all sweet, and we have a marvelous time. Haley, you're noted for many careers at the present time, of course. I'm interested to know which one came first. What, what did you get started in first? Acting or singing or what? Well, I really don't consider myself a singer. You don't? No. Well, there are a lot of people who do, however. Well, you're very modest, that's all. No, not a bit. I can't bear to hear myself sing. <laughs> But, do you buy your own? You don't buy your records then, do you? No, they you keep them to me and I hide them away. You don't bury them or anything, though, do you? I want to. <laughs> <laughs> well, Haley, that's very interesting. I've never heard a, a vocalist make that comment before, but you don't consider yourself a vocalist. All right, we'll get off of that. How do you like working for Walt Disney? Is he a good man? He's the best. Uh, that's what I've heard all day long, you know. Walt Disney is the best. I'm happy to hear that. That's certainly our opinion, too, however. Annette, it's good to have you in Denver. You've been here before, though. And we even talked to you on the telephone one time before when you were in town. Where did you have dinner tonight? We had dinner at Governor McNichols. I thought so. You were with Debbie and Mike, weren't you? He wasn't in town, but his wonderful wife was there and many guests, and we had a wonderful, wonderful dinner. Do you have any new records coming out you could tell us about and give us a sneak preview? Yes, I have. Well, first of all, I have a new album called The Story of My Teens, and from this album, a single was taken, and it's called Mr. Piano Man. Hey. Is there any vocal track in there that gives them a glimpse into your life or anything of that nature? Or did you do that? You mean the album, The Story I thought, of My Teens? I thought maybe you would go through a little vocal track explaining some of your life also, do you? Well, yes, it starts with the Mickey Mouse Club, and it explains my life all the way up until present day. Have any boys in it? No. <laughs> you didn't put them in, huh? No. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's all right. That's fine. Annette, thank you for coming by and talking with us. Thank Appreciate you. it very much. Here, let me get okay, Jimmy Dodge over here. Okay, you can get Jimmy over here right quick. We've, uh... 
Weird celebrity center, 888 South Cottle Boulevard. Jimmy has just wanted to meet you. Hi, nice. Jim, it's good to see you. Nice to see you. Of course, I've seen you on that screen a lot, but I wanted to talk to you tonight a little bit. Thank you very much. Do you like it in Denver pretty well? Love it. Love it. The only trouble is it's too short a stay. Got to go down to old Miami Beach tomorrow. What are you going to do in Miami Beach? We're going down to do some promoting of the Mickey Mouse Club. I'm so glad to have been here in Denver. I was only here once before, and it was for a uh, toy-a-thon about four or five years ago. And it was a very enjoyable stay. And uh, uh, this time we're staying at Cherry Creek Inn, which is lovely. And it's, it's a beautiful place. Sports Center. This is fabulous. They have some beautiful places along they this do. Just out here on Cabo Boulevard. lovely people in Denver. I mean, I've noticed this. I don't just say it because we're here. We're very proud Lovely ladies. Really, I've seen it. It's gorgeous. We're, we're very, very proud of the people and the places that are going up around here, too, Jimmy. And also, I see that everyone is very civic-minded. They love Denver. Jimmy Todd, ladies and gentlemen, whom you've seen on the Mickey Mouse Club many, many times. And there's just so much Mickey Mouse going on here tonight, I can't believe it. A boat race for water skiing in the pool! Yes, I should see that. And now, while they're water skiing in the pool, I think it's time that Johnny Mitchell and I relax our larynxes. <laughs> so there you go man oh, man jimmy scoping out the babes in uh, denver <laughs> i said you know of course you know Haley Haley's keeping it real and that's super proper jimmy's the nicest guy in the room he's he's glad that everybody's very civic minded in denver <laughs> yes uh he he should have written a, a denver song like he did for washington that's right but man to, I just want to be on the fly on the wall at the dinner with Haley Mills, Annette, Jimmy Dodd, Walt, the governor's wife, and Vernon Stouffer. No kidding. Well, I, you know, I was just thinking it's the rare Haley Mills, Annette crossover event, That's which right. is a huge right. deal. Their tones couldn't be much more different. They were <laughs> I know. Oh, they're so, it's so fun to hear them like being themselves like right. back in the day. They, that's the something clock. you don't often hear. That was a lot of fun. Yeah pretty great and jimmy dot again you know we said this a million times i you know you wish you could have met jimmy dot wish he had been around a lot longer because he just sounds like a fun guy yeah he seems like the sweetest guy walt did keep an eye on this facility himself uh it seemed like a real pet project to his he was often roaming around and asking questions looking into details much like at disneyland even taking in a bowling game or two Disney art covered the walls, and uh, the familiar Disney cast name tags would be worn. The training program would eventually become identical to Disney training for the parks, with Walt providing a film up until the very end of Disney's ownership. In the Walt Disney World story, the Celebrity Sports Center would be a crucial piece in the build-up to the Florida Resort, as it would become a management incubator for Walt Disney World. Disney legend Bob Allen would take over as the manager of the center in 1964, and would make the facility profitable. And Bob Matheson, who we mentioned in our last episode in relation to Jimmy Carter's trip, would train the executive team for Walt Disney World at the Sports Center in the later part of that decade and into the 70s. After Walt died, the biggest champion of the Sports Center was gone. After that, and as Disney fully opened up Walt Disney World and had everyone they needed trained, the Celebrity Sports Center began to be an outlier at Walt Disney Productions. So, in 1979, the center would be sold. It would go on for another 15 years with the addition of some nifty indoor-outdoor water slides, but it would eventually be torn down to make way for another shopping center in 1995. It's a real shame. It's now like a Home Depot. <laughs> it really is. Um, I mean, 
And I'm, I mean, I'm sure a lot of the stuff that was already gone, like the Hofbrau house and things like that. Right. But if it had been preserved in its like original layout, oh, it would be so great. Oh man, I know it would be popular again. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the celebrity sports center still lives on today, as the wood from the bowling lanes was used as a new floor of the ballroom at the Oxford Hotel in Denver. And you can still see one of the stars from the sign gracing the top of the Lumber Baron Inn, mm. which is particularly interesting as it's a giant mid-century metal star atop an old brick Victorian mansion. Now, that makes the Lumber Baron Inn on one of my uh, to-do <laughs> sea yeah. locations. The name alone would exactly. draw me in. So as we leave the sports center and before we arrive on property, the other part of this equation to get Disney up and running was the hotels themselves. And there's a lot to talk about there, but one interesting wrinkle is the tale of the Hilton Inn South on International Drive in Orlando. After hearing the 1965 Disney World announcement, an Orlando developer named Finley Hamilton bought 10 acres of land in 1968 near Interstate 4 north of property. When him and another developer built a small connector road between two larger roads, Hamilton named it International Drive, quote, because it sounded big and important. <laughs> When the Hilton Inn South opened in 1970, Disney made an arrangement with Hamilton to fully staff it and use it as an incubator for their hotel team and culinary staff. So for a while, you could stay at a Disney resort off property, and it became a popular lounge spot for executives ramping up for the opening of the resort. Now the Hilton Inn would eventually be sold, but you can still visit it under the new guise of the somewhat out of control Coco Key Hotel and Water Resort. It looks a little frantic to stay at, but it may be worth the stop on your way to property at some point to see the first Disney-operated resort. And with that said, let's check in with the man himself. Let's check in with Walt. Welcome to a little bit of Florida here in California. This is where the early planning is taking place for our so-called uh, Disney World project. Now, the purpose of this film is to bring you up to date about some of the plans for Disney World. But before I go into any of the details, I want to say just a word about the site of our Florida project. As you can see on this map, we have a perfect location in Florida, almost in the very center of the state. In fact, we selected this site because it's so easy for tourists and Florida residents to get here by automobile. Now, in larger scale on this map, our Florida land is located partly in Orange County, and Osceola County between the cities of Orlando and Kissimmee. And the important thing is that the Disney World is located just a few miles from the crossing point of Interstate 4 and Sunshine State Parkway, Florida's major highways carrying motors east and west and north and south to the center of the state. The sketches and plans you will see today are simply a starting point our first overall thinking about Disney World. Everything in this room may change time and time again as we move ahead. But the basic philosophy of what we're planning for Disney World is going to remain very much as it is right now. We know what our goals are. We know what we hope to accomplish. And believe me, it's the most exciting and challenging assignment we've ever tackled at Walt Disney Productions. From the very beginning, non-theme park recreation was intended to be a big part of Disney's plans for its new Florida property. 
Not long after the resort was announced, the term Vacation Kingdom was coined to convey the fact that Walt Disney World was meant to be much more than another Disneyland-type theme park. While obviously the theme park would be a major draw, and would help provide an economic foundation for the later construction of Epcot City, it was only one small part of a larger whole, which would include themed resorts and an array of recreational opportunities, the likes of which Florida was already known for. In 1967, Disney stated that its vacation kingdom would be, quote, a place of entertainment crowned by a new and different Disneyland, a place of recreation where land and water sports abound, and a place of relaxation, catering to the needs not only of the guest who comes for the day, but planned and oriented around activities and adventures for those who stay here for part or all of their family vacation, unquote. In 1968, as design progressed, Disney heralded its complete vacation land concept, saying that the design of the property had been guided by its water orientation and the interrelationship between the theme park and theme resorts. Jeff, it's uh, hard to think of now since the idea of theme park vacations have become so ingrained, but vacations, especially in Florida, used to be very different things. Oh, yes. I mean... Uh... You know, vacations in Florida make me think of that uh, Donald Duck cartoon with the uh, old Spanish fort. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, and mean, the Fountain of Youth and uh, Cypress Gardens and Cypress Gardens, uh, Central Florida. Right. Nobody really went to. It was all about you know Fort the Bach Tower. Yeah. So it was a very different place. Uh, aside from the emphasis on physical recreation, something that is almost been completely lost today at Disney World, it's interesting to see how much of the pre-opening hype had to focus on explaining the concept of themed resorts. People just weren't used to this idea, and I guess when you think back on the days of simple hotels and motels and motor courts, you can see why Disney had to explain that they had something different in mind. In 1969, Disney explained, quote, a major contrast to California's Disneyland will be the interrelationship between the theme park and the nearby resort hotels. Each hotel has been master-planned, both aesthetically and operationally, to complement the Magic Kingdom theme park and the other recreational activities. In design motif, recreational activities, restaurants, and resort atmosphere, each hotel will carry out a single theme that represents a culture or architectural style from around the world. The hotels have been called theme resorts because everything from interior decor to employees' costumes and dining room menus will be an expression of the same overall theme, unquote. So this was an exciting leap ahead for the company. That's right. You think about it, that makes me think of their reaction to the seeing the success of the Disneyland Hotel and wondering, maybe wondering how they could do it you know, similarly, but differently. Uh, what a great idea. And uh, like I said earlier, this just this whole thing of the themed resorts up there just appeals to me and such. I mean, I love hotels and I love theme parks. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it, but the combination really makes sense to me. And I think it's, it's just a great idea. Yeah. I just love that they ex have to explain that. Yeah. The costumes will match right. the theme of the place. And the menus will also... It's just not going to be a generic hotel. So I mean, Talk about the music. Come on now. Something they leaned into really hard. Yeah, exactly. Right. 
so let's take a leap back to the very start and look at what the Imagineers had in mind for the Vacation Kingdom when they and Walt started planning out the property in the mid-60s. I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you've seen the famous 1966 Epcot film where Walt describes some of his aspirations for the so-called Disney World. And if you've ever closely examined the big map that he stands in front of in that film, you'll note many differences in how the resort area was eventually realized. Notably, uh, what we know today as the Seven Seas Lagoon and the Magic Kingdom parking lot were not there. The entrance to Disney property was intended to be located down at the intersection of World Drive and 192, and would have a complex there for day visitor parking along with four motels, a trailer park, and a camper area. To reach the theme park, you'd have to take the monorail all the way up the spine of the property through Epcot City and to the Magic Kingdom and its resorts. Inside what we now think of as the Magic Kingdom Resort area, everything would be linked up by Woodway People Mover. So all the hotels and the theme parks, everything hooked up by Woodway. Man, I have a hard time picturing it without the Seven Seas Lagoon. It's like, that's just such a amazing part of the design to me. But it was really shrewd for them to make you go through Epcot and see all that in the initial design. I mean, that's just a great commercial for Epcot and all the industrial center. Totally. And it was absolutely intentional. I mean, we all know the, the term weenie, the castle being the weenie at the end of Main Street to draw you forward. This was Walt's idea. And it was his plan for the Florida property that the theme park would be the weenie to get everybody there, to get them through property. But along the way, you'd have to go through the industrial area and through Epcot and see all that stuff. So it was the draw to get everybody there. But Along the way, he would show you what he wanted to show you. So it's pretty, pretty smart stuff. Instead of the lagoon, as we've said, there would be a number of motels and recreational facilities. So these were located in three clusters in front of the Magic Kingdom. They form kind of a cloverleaf layout with the Magic Kingdom itself. Uh, like you said, it's weird not to see the lagoon there, but to see these things all just sort of laid out. You have to wonder kind of what it would look like. To the west of the Magic Kingdom entrance would be a par three golf course, which is kind of neat, and three motels, the Frontierland Motel, the City of Yesterday Motel, and the Spanish Colonial Motel. Now, two of these are self-explanatory, but the City of Yesterday deserves a special mention because it's something that was mentioned in Walt's first Florida press conference in 1965. Uh, at the time, he had expressed interest in building two cities on property, one, a city of tomorrow, the other, a city of yesterday. And while the city of tomorrow eventually evolved into Epcot, the city of yesterday kind of faded away. Jeff, it would have been interesting to see this idea develop further, maybe into Lake Buena Vista or even into Celebration. Yeah, it's funny you said that because I always think of Celebration as the city of yesterday that actually got filled because they're bringing back all these old concepts of urban design with this new urbanism thing. It'd be interesting to do a little bit more on Celebration someday because the story to its lead up is kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, they ended up kind of having the city of yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it's weird how that worked out just because it was just sort of half mentioned by Walt and was kind right. of on this plan, but then just went away and for decades and decades. I wonder what the motel would have been like, the city of yesterday motel. Yeah, that I don't know. It You know, it could have been like, I know you think of something like... Uh, Dixie Landings or Port Orleans today where it's kind of like a faux little city layout. But uh, yeah, you'd have to wonder. It sounds like something 
they would have developed in the Disney decade. It would be right. like an old-timey right. city motel, and each building would be a different part of the city. So. There's more Disney decade in this original plan, I tell you what. Yeah, absolutely. Directly in front of the Magic Kingdom in this plan, another little cluster of motels, an Oriental motel, a Dutch motel, and an African motel. So we did eventually get that one. That's right. In another form. Uh, right in the middle of all this, at the center of everything, two facilities, a roller dome, and an ice rink. How did these never happen? An ice rink in Florida? That just seems like something they would do just to do it, you know? Yeah, just to say, yeah, just to say they did, just to be, like, wacky about it. It's funny to me that, like, be like both options of skating are available right in front of the theme park. Yeah, we'll give you both both choices. If it makes me think of the Celebrity Sports Center. That immediately made me, even though they, have, they don't have skating there, but you wonder what the scale, because the scale of the Celebrity Sports Center was so big. What would the scale of these been? Just out of this world, the world's largest ice ice rink, you know? Oh, probably so. Well, especially since they're right in front of the Magic Kingdom. I mean, they're right smack dab in the center of all this stuff, so they'd have to be a big deal. The first Pleasure Island. (laughs) Exactly. Years later, Michael (laughs) Eisner. Now now we know where he got all his ideas. He just looked at the big map. We're not done. We're not done with the ideas he used. No, not at all. Uh, the other resort closer in the 1966 plan is to the east of the Magic Kingdom entrance. It has two large water-focused resorts on the shore of Bay Lake. These were to be the South Seas Motel and the Colonial American Motel, a.k.a. the Cape Cod Motel, which would have had a large lagoon known as Cape Cod Bay. Okay, now, you know, so far, everything I feel good with what we got but this is kind of making me wish we had this a little bit yeah these were pretty big motel areas they were kind of the deluxe version and had these little coves kind of carved out of the shore of bay lake and a lot of buildings sort of lining these inlets and uh, the south seas and the cape cod so this would have been interesting to see that's where you get Um, into the uh, the scuba diving Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, a lot of plans for what would become the Polynesian and uh, a lot of exciting recreational ideas like scuba diving, for one. Swim with sharks, another Eisner idea. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Give me your uh, best stuff. Exactly. So Bay Lake in these early plans would have been enormous. Uh, it would be extended southward nearly to where Lake Buena Vista is today. Uh, As Disney said in 1967, a key to the entire concept now under development at WED is the extension and enlargement of Bay Lake, a natural body of water into a three-mile waterway dotted with natural and man-made islands. In its new form, it will become the focus of water spectacles and sports, while at the same time retaining its original, often spectacular beauty. So this would have been a big deal. There's some confusion uh, I've noted in the way they describe it as a three-mile waterway. They also use that description in later years after they've decided to expand and create the Seven Seas Lagoon. So I don't know if they're kind of mi- mixing up their message or whatever, but at some point they go from this long waterway down to where the village would later be, and uh, then that gets changed up. But 
uh, the, that idea was soon abandoned. By 1968, they decided to expand Bay Lake westward instead to form the Seven Seas Lagoon. Uh, but even into the mid-70s, there were still some proposals to bring Bay Lake all the way down to the village area, forming four different recreational communities based around horseback riding, sailing, tennis, and golf. I'm obsessed with that idea. That idea, I just cannot get over. <laughs> yeah, that so would have amazing. been, uh, I mean, imagine being able to take a boat all the way, basically down where like the Sasagula is now would be expanded just to be part of Bay Lake going right. past Fort Wilderness and up to Lake Mabel, which is to the east of Bay Lake. And uh, that would have been something else. It would have been pretty That's wild. Right. Resorts along the way as well. Uh, one thing that does bear mentioning as these plans change over the years is something that appeared on the fifth preliminary master plan in September 1966. Something that survived from Walt's scribbled layout of property, the Jungle Swamp Boat Ride. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Got to have that swamp ride. This would have been located to the south of the golf course area, which seems to always have been intended for its eventual location west of the Polynesian. So swamp ride, always surviving. Would have been cool. Yeah. Uh, I love it's the jungle swamp. Uh, yeah, ride. that's so, right. It's exciting. Um, as I mentioned, by 1968, the Seven Seas Lagoon appears in plans. But it was originally intended to extend westward behind where the Grand Floridian is located today. On its south banks would be located the campground and golf courses. The Polynesian and Contemporary were featured on this plan, along with several other vaguely defined hotels. And later that year, the Asian, Venetian, Polynesian, and Contemporary would all be located roughly where they would remain on plans in years to follow. By 1969, as land clearing and construction began in earnest, the plans began to take on their final shape. The Western Lagoon extension disappeared, but remained a possibility for future expansion. In the shuffle, the campground was moved to a site roughly corresponding to where the Wilderness Lodge is now. The Disney Annual Report from 1969 described a 650-acre pleasure waterway, which would be the focal point around which all the other attractions will be located. The waterway, they said, will always be kept crystal clear and safe <coughs> for swimming, boating, sailing, water skiing, and aquatic spectacles. Wow. So, uh, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Uh, I, I love the idea of aquatic spectacles. Uh, a lot of activity out on these waterways. They oh, busy, busy. That's right. I always wonder why they moved the campground. I mean, I guess they, they wanted to have a hotel pad that would make more money, but... It's always curious to me. It would make sense for it to be that close to the activity in the early days. It's true. I, I don't know why that was. Maybe that was more accessible down there. And no way of knowing unless we find somebody who knows. So <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll have to look into that. We'll get Wing Chow on the, on the dialer. Uh, but to create these waterways, these waterways they were creating for aquatic spectacle, it was no easy task. Uh, Bay Lake was a naturally occurring waterway, but had to be completely drained and dredged for recreational purposes. The Seven Seas Lagoon was even harder. A 200-acre, 14-foot-deep lagoon was dug, providing some 7 million cubic yards of earth for site improvement of the theme park. This allowed Disney to famously build the Magic Kingdom's Utilidor areas above ground, then bury them to create a basement for the theme park, which was built on top. 
Hotel sites, the north service area, and other areas that needed higher elevations were improved with fill from the lagoon as well. As a result, the Magic Kingdom is about 16 feet above natural ground level. As many as 60,000 cubic yards of earth, or approximately 2,000 truckloads, were said to have been moved in a single 16-hour working day. This is a big operation. Yeah, I always, I mean, I always wonder if this is why they ended up on this plan because they figured out they needed that fill. But I mean, if it was, that was a great happy accident. If not, what, a, what a project! I mean, it's very amazing to me that they did that and went through with it. Absolutely, and I mean, just for infrastructure and show. I mean, it had nothing even to do with theme park or revenue producing anything. It was just needed to be done for the infrastructure and needed to be done for the resort show. It's pretty wild to think yeah. of the, I mean, you got to think that res- that lagoon has made them quite a bit of money over the years in a way. Yeah, that's very true. Absolutely. So, I don't know. Maybe it made sense. That's why you get the Joe Fowler. That's right. Get those Joe's going. Um, most of the area that was excavated had root mat, which was a combination of ancient roots and muck, basically. Uh, It was super dense and hard to deal with. Most developments in Florida would just build on top of root mat and kind of factor in that would eventually settle and sink somewhat. Uh, Local contractors weren't really ready or equipped to deal with the scale of this problem at Disney World. So Disney wound up getting giant machines from quarries in Illinois to dig it up. These were massive earth-moving machines. Uh, But even after the material had been extracted, they had to worry about the stuff they dug out because it had a lot of peat in it, and that could have caught fire when (laughs) exposed to air. Uh, So it became a secondary problem of finding out a way to dispose of all this rotting material because, you know, the anaerobic environment, these would be roots and, like, trees that were hundreds of years old. Once you take them out of the muck, they'd start rotting, so you couldn't use it as fill, or it would rot, and the buildings would sink. So they had to figure out what to do with it. It was a big mess. But eventually, as we know, they solved all their problems, and the immaculately manicured waterways of Bay Lake and the Seven Seas Lagoon were ready to host a number of recreational opportunities when the resort opened in 1971. And as Steve Birnbaum would say, anecdotally, they uh, they found a bunch of white sand underneath there, and line the beaches with it absolutely apparently the uh i read a i think it was with joe potter an interview talking about how the there's this layer of roots and muck and underneath that is sand maybe it's vice versa i can't remember and then there's like layers of clay different colored clay that kind of goes all the way down and the clay is the problem because if you fill up clay with water it won't go into the soil it'll just stay there so uh, they had a lot to deal with, but in there they found all that sand, which they used for the beaches. So uh, it's, it was quite an achievement. The magic of Walt Disney World Tomorrow's better than it 
seems There's something magical about a parade Little kids and pink lemonade Grown-ups having the best time of their lives There's magic in other things you can do And when you're done and you think you are through You turn around and then there's There's no better way to experience the vacation kingdom of the world than to jump on the Walt Disney World monorail system for a grand circle tour of the Seven Seas Lagoon. Uh, one can only imagine how exciting this must have been back in the 1970s when everything in the resort was fresh and pristine and the monorail glided over white sand beaches and stands of green topiary. So as we remember the magic of the vacation kingdom, we're going to hop on the monorail for a loop of our own to see how a visit to the resort may have played out in years gone by. This is, uh, this is kind of our equivalent of the time that Harry Anderson tricked out the Disneyland Railroad to go back through time. <laughs> we're, we're kind of, we're kind of uh, pulling one of those. Harry's right. here in spirit. It's also kind of a callback to when we were kids. Uh, we shared a bedroom and would kind of stay up awake at night, uh, sort of astrally projecting ourselves to Walt Disney World. <laughs> and like talking our way through a fictional <laughs> visit to Epcot or whatever. So, yeah, yeah, th those were good times. So uh, let's jump aboard the monorail to the dulcet tones of Jack Wagner and see what we can see. Hi, everyone, and welcome aboard the Walt Disney World local monorail system. During the trip, we request that everyone please remain seated and that there please be no eating, drinking, or smoking. Thank you. Our next stop takes us right inside the Grand Canyon concourse of the Futuristic Contemporary Resort Hotel. Our next stop takes us right inside the Grand Canyon concourse of the Contemporary Resort Hotel. Like Tomorrowland in the Magic Kingdom, the Contemporary Resort Hotel is themed to the future. On the 15th floor of the Contemporary Tower is the glass-enclosed Top of the World Supper Club, where famous stars entertain and where you have a special nighttime view of the vacation kingdom aglow. We are now approaching the Contemporary Resort Hotel. Please remain seated until the monorail has come to a complete stop within the station. The doors will open automatically for you to the left of our forward motion. At that time, please lower your head, watch your step, and take all small children by the hand. Also, check around you for all your personal belongings. Once again, this is the Contemporary Resort Hotel. Our next stop will be the Transportation and Ticket Center.
We can't talk about the contemporary without talking a bit about Welton Beckett and Associates, who designed the distinctive tower, a design which largely didn't change during the development of the entire project. This firm was a legendary one, responsible for such buildings as the Pan Pacific Auditorium, which you would recognize as the entrance to both Hollywood Studios and California Adventure, the Capitol Records Building, LAX, and the Cinerama Dome. Michael, we, uh, we attended a movie at the Cinerama Dome one time. Yes, we did. Uh, while, while you were visiting visiting me out there, uh, we had to head over and check it out. I love that place. I uh, went there as often as I could. Yeah, those are all distinctive structures, and you know the contemporary is very distinctive in its own right. I'd say it's probably up there with Cinderella Castle and Spaceship Earth as one of the most recognizable buildings on property. Oh, absolutely, and it was certainly something that they brought forward in all their marketing at the time. For sure, that's right. Beckett and Associates also worked directly with Disney before designing the Ford and GE pavilions at the 1964 World's Fair. A lot of people say the Contemporary Hotel was tied to the Epcot City concept, both with the Contemporary Hotel once being in the middle of the Epcot City design, and with the idea of a covered concourse level for shopping and dining with the monorail passing through it. And the Contemporary wasn't with the very first plans for Walt Disney World when Walt was alive. Michael, what do you think? Are you buying it or not? I don't know. I think a lot of the similar thought probably went into it. Uh, I think there was a desire at the time to tie hotels in with the lands of the Magic Kingdom. So having the Contemporary as a backdrop for Tomorrowland certainly worked out well. So I don't know. I I think their, their heads were in a futuristic mind space, and this was kind of their first effort along those lines it certainly serves as an excellent backdrop to tomorrowland that's for sure you know it it was named the contemporary as a working title and as it got closer to the opening that was briefly called the tempo bay during its development but after living with the contemporary descriptive label the whole time roy himself insisted that the name stick i kind of wish the tempo bay would have stuck because uh the name contemporary has been a little problematic to maintain through the years. What do you think, Michael? I, I think you're right. It's hard to divorce yourself and your mind from contemporary, but I think tempo Bay, especially if it had really been tied into the theme with which it opened, uh, it would have allowed a little less stress over the years of keeping things, everything modern, you know, it could have really locked into a specific time and place. That's right. Well, the Contemporary opened with the opening of Walt Disney World in 1971, but for our purposes, let's set the dial a little later for our trip to 1973. The Contemporary had tons of changes as Disney learned the hotel business, and by 1973, they were really getting dialed in. We approached the resort in style via Mark IV monorail high up on the fourth floor and into the cavernous Grand Canyon Concourse. In addition to the name, another Disney trait would struggle with in the decades to come was the modernist, essentially brutalist architecture. I love it, but clearly it was something that later executives would try and work around to soften whatever they could. But the initial softening came through brilliant interior design. We see warm colors of a southwestern motif represented here. And of course, we must mention the orange plexiglass leaves of the fake trees throughout the lobby along with the circles of globe light fixtures. Above the stores, as you enter, you see colored glass patterns on the ceiling to the shops, shining up like squares and triangles of stained glass. 
but your eyes are mostly drawn to the beautiful and giant tile mural of the Grand Canyon by Mary Blair, which luckily we still have, somewhat improbably considering all the change that has happened through the years. Yes, this is really lucky that we still have this. I know there have been people over the years who have wanted to get rid of it on the inside, but luckily it has survived because it is a truly a masterpiece. Yeah, I read where the Welton Beckett proposed, you know, it's, it encases the elevators and they, uh, they had proposed to just encase it in steel and that would have been so cold and intense, but this is warm and inviting. It's an incredible feat. Nine stories of ceramic tiles on multiple sides, tons of great detail and gorgeous color choices. It covers 18,000 square feet with one by one foot tile, meaning there's 18,000 tiles. And it's one of the rare instances of Disney art at the time where you can see the artists responsible for it over by the elevators that are within the mural. This mural was titled The Pueblo Village and is the culmination of a series of mid to late 1960s ceramic murals by Blair, starting with the one at Jules Stein Eye Institute that was a gift from Walt Disney and the two larger tile murals at Disneyland's Tomorrowland and then these. So the the one at Jules Stein Eye Institute is really cool. I, I was lucky enough to see part of that at uh, the Walt Disney Family Museum. Yes, and it really is. You, you can tell it's in the same sort of family with this and the things that she did at Disneyland. It's kind of a natural progression. Coming down from the monorail via the escalator, we pass the monorail ticket booth to shops ahead just like today. If we are facing out towards the giant atrium window to the north, on our left we will see the gift shop Fantasia, a name which would remain to this day at the Contemporary and later cause a craze of sorcerer Mickey topiaries and statues and stuff. I never understood why this was named Fantasia, as we will see most of the names in the Contemporary are somehow linked to the national parks, starting of course with the Grand Canyon Concourse and its southwest motif. But uh, Fantasia is still there, still with us. Yeah, it's there in the there in the middle now. It's kind right. of moved out of its its old location. I miss the old shop there. That was always a mandatory stop. Yeah, to see like... what see what was there, and uh, of course now it's the arcade and the Fantasia's kind of taken over the old seating area in the middle. But yeah, this was a great little store. It was the most contemporary, up to date uh, Disney gift items. Directly after Fantasia and Connected, we have Plaza Gifts and Sundries. Gotta love a good sundry shop. This one came complete with the FTD florist, but I don't think I need any flowers today. <laughs> no. Now, next to that is a spot where for years the Concourse Gifts and Sundries store would be, and it was a liquor store called The Spirit World, and I am so in love with this name, I can't get over it. I know. I, you know, we, we'd grown up with the that sort of digital sign, digital right. looking neon sign that says, you know, Concourse Sundries and Spirits. Uh, but I had no idea that back in the day it had been called the Spirit World. That is such a, just a brilliant name. Very brilliant. On the other side of the concourse where Bayview Gifts is now, we had Contemporary Man, Contemporary Woman, and Kingdom Jewelers Limited. These stores would stay here in some form or fashion for quite a long time. And we're going to make a quick stop in the Contemporary Man to rent a tuxedo for our dinner tonight. Because it's always a nice touch to have a tuxedo rental ready whenever you need it. Absolutely. 
Now, behind the jewelry shop where we have the Monorail Club Car, a bit of a dive bar within the Contemporary with windows out on Bay Lake, they are known for their signature cocktails, the Monorail Yellow, Pink, Purple, and Red. But I'm not quite ready to have a drink yet. I am a little hungry. So we can head over to the southern half of the concourse, which has an ever-changing selection of restaurants for us. Now, new to us in 1973 is the Outer Rim Steakhouse, not the bar and lounge as we know it today, and not themed to some kind of outer rim in space, but instead to the Grand Canyon. Now, if we were to come in 1971, this location would have been the Canyon Terrace Lounge, which often had live music, including, as you recently posted at Michael, a jazz organist, which I would have loved to see. Yeah, you could just imagine that music just wafting through the concourse. It would be incredible. That's right. This location would become the Outer Rim in 1973, but live music would still continue in the concourse from time to time. Originally starting as a youth mariachi band on the Cinco de Mayo celebrations in Disneyland, Mariachi Cobre would eventually be formed and hired to play at Walt Disney World originally in the Grand Canyon Concourse here at the Contemporary and at Pecos Bills in Frontierland, before finding their forever home at the Mexico Pavilion at Epcot Center. Let's hope they keep it that way. Amen. Now, of course, you see the mariachi band in the promo film The Magic of Walt Disney World, and a great shot of the monorail entering the concourse and the mariachi band playing between the two monorail tracks. <laughs> I mean, could you that's, imagine? That, that's a fun thing to just uh, walk into, you know, you come into the resort and there's the mariachi band waiting for you. I mean, mariachi music is, is up there for me. I, I would love to hear mariachi band performing in this concourse, but I can't help but think that the complaints from the rooms directly above may have been frequent. Yeah, I would imagine so. So the Outer Rim had an incredible facade. There's uh, The logo alone is incredible. It has a really geometric font on a giant wooden sign topped off with a southwestern Indian sunburst legend in white, orange, and black. And there's these great, fantastic adobe walls that run down towards a hexagonal kitchen, the left length of the concourse. The real treat is the little windows in the adobe walls with various three-dimensional Mary Blair artwork, furthering the mural motifs. We have some goats, a great one with an American Indian child and a bear, just some truly charming 3D visualizations of this artwork. Yeah, these were neat. And the great thing about this version of the contemporary is the theme is carried throughout everything, you know, through all the restaurants, through all the decor, through the little vignettes like those. It really does have a complete theme throughout. So that was fun. Right. So I'm just going to order for us. I want me coffee for sure. I just ordered you Florida orange juice because, you know, we're in Florida. Yeah, that's right. Got to get that sunshine. Uh, for our breakfast, I got you the signature dish, the Outer Rim. It has a <laughs> choice of juice, which we are chosen, sausage, bacon, or ham, with a waffle for two twenty-five. Ooh, wow, great. And I myself ordered the Osceola, which has the choice of coconut, banana, raisin, pecan, or plain waffle. I'm going to go with the pecan, with bacon or sausage and a beverage for two seventy five. So I'm I'm going up charge here. Right, fancy like a multiple flavor waffle choices. I know coconut waffle. I've never heard of, but I don't know. Not? That sounds pretty good. After we finish up, I want to head downstairs via the escalators right beside us. But first, we should check out the rest of the offerings here. We got the Terrace Cafe, 
It's roughly where the Contempo Cafe is now. And moving towards the other giant window, we have the Terrace Buffet and the Pueblo Room on the far wall. Both of these are where Chef Mickey's are now, but the Pueblo was part of the scramble to build more restaurants directly after Walt Disney World opened. Just to take care of all those hungry mouths leaving yeah. the theme park. Uh, now we are a few years ahead of the further expansion here that would add another restaurant, which I would be remiss to uh, to mention. The one outside and underneath the atrium windows called the Cococino Cove, which would also be called the Cococino Grove, which is kind of bizarre. But this was something that we would always mention constantly as yes. a, uh, a Steve Birnbaum add-on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah a, a, a uh, constant presence. Yeah, all these different places were... Uh, it's just wild to think you had all these different establishments in there, each with their own little theme. And they just kept changing them over and over. To this day, they just keep mixing and matching. But the Outer Rim and Chef Mickey's have been there for quite a long time at this point. But mm -hmm. Anyway, let's head downstairs, properly fed. I made us an appointment at the Captain's Chair, the barbershop on the third floor. It's always nice to get spiffed up for our big evening. Now, if we had the ladies with us, they could get their hair styled or wig set at the American Beauty Shop. That's good to know. Also on the third floor is the Olympiad Health Club, complete with sauna, whirlpool, and masseur on call. Wow. Now, today, this is a little bizarre part of the contemporary. The fitness center remains here, but the rest of the floor is a bit of the land time forgot. A kind of stubby floor with some offices for the contemporary and not much more. It's yeah, this is like the floor that you bypass and don't even know is there unless you right. seek it out intentionally. It's very strange. Uh, moving on, we pass through the second floor, which is convention space. As we mentioned in the episode previous, the contemporary is where Richard Nixon gave his famous I'm not a crook remarks that happened here in the gigantic ballroom of the Americas, a room that had yet another hydraulic stage to go along with the Tomorrowland Terrace, uh, Fantasy Fair in Fantasyland, and the Disneyland Bandstand. Why was this such a thing? I, I don't know. They just love that idea, I guess. Um, I guess, you know, live performers don't get heckled while they're setting up, maybe. Yeah, yeah that's a good, I mean, you can come in, load in, and do all that stuff, and uh, have it happen off stage and just come right into the show. Other breakout rooms here, again, took the National Parks motif. You had the Everglades room, the Great Smokies room, Yellowstone, Yosemite. They're all there. But you also have the Atlantic, Pacific, and Gulf Coast rooms. And let me tell you, there's some mighty fine dining they added recently to the Gulf Coast room. Uh, jackets are required, but they have table service and how. They'll make you Caesar salads at the table or any number of 70s fine dining dishes that they can combine or set on fire by your head, complete with violinists and varying serenaders. Not really my style. It's described as elegant French service style in one hotel description, but quite the spectacle. Wow, yeah. I mean, when things are bursting into flame, when they're making stuff at your table, uh, that's a lot of attention. That's right. Dragging it through the garden. <laughs> yep. So we have finally made it to the first floor, and it looks a little different than the 2021 contemporary. <laughs> the most significant difference is the 90s era convention space that got built out front of the hotel. And that was not here, so the entry to the resort was significantly easier and much more pleasing to look at. 
Cars would drive the length of the building and enter underneath the A-frame, where they would check in with the valet desk, exiting underneath the monorail track where the doors to the buses are now. So instead of there being a big port cochere outside the A-frame, it was all contained within, including service roads that ran underneath the building to the back as well. This is a bummer to me that this wasn't kept. It looks so much better on the outside. Yeah, it was a lot cleaner. A lot, a lot cleaner, for sure. There's a Disney special, I think. Maybe it's the 10th anniversary special. It's the one where Michael Keaton's the bellhop. And that's uh, Dean Jones. With too. Dean Jones. Yeah, Dean Jones is the father of the family that comes with Ricky Schroeder and Dana Plato. Anyway, they check in and you can see kind of how the check in process went. And uh, it was a lot, a lot sleeker back in the day. And they had that cool contemporary logo from back then with the A frame front and center. Really cool logo that yeah. they would put on, on a pattern on everything back then. Inside, we have the front desk, uh, which also has more Mary Blair Southwest art furthering the mural. You can see this very well on the 1977 special, The Mouseketeers at Walt Disney World. In addition, there's some wild black, white, and lime art on the walls mimicking some Southwest Indian textiles. And that, too, they, they talk right in front of that on The Mouseketeers at Walt Disney World, so you can see that. Yeah, it's really far out, like crazy patterns. That's right. Where the Wave restaurant is now, there was the Fiesta Fun Center, opened in 1973. We'll come back to the Fun Center, but it just recently opened, replacing what was called the Sunshine State Exhibitorium, which was some sort of convention flex space. That name. I know. I had never heard this until I was out, I was in the Disney archives doing research for uh, one of the D23 events or something like that. And came across, it was just uh, like a Marty Sklar memo saying, we have decided the name for this space in the contemporary. It will be called the Sunshine State Exhibitorium. And I didn't know at that point it had ever like really in the real world been called that. But it was for a couple of years. And that is, man, that's right up with uh, Buffeteria as a, oh, yeah. as a coinage of note. That is definitely a coinage of note. It seemed like that, you know, from anecdotal accounts, they would set up ping pong tables and stuff there when they didn't have anything going on. So it was kind of making its way towards a area for the youths. Yeah, it was kind of a proto. I know they had movies there at night, too. So they right. were kind of like getting into that mode already. Uh, for now, let's head out the back door of the resort towards Bay Lake, where a world of recreation awaits us. <laughs> This area is flanked by the two garden wings, called Bayside and Lakeside. The main tower is simply called The Towers, which always sounds great in the resort literature that is describing various locations. Second story of The Towers is the Gulf Coast Room. <laughs> now there's an early layout of the contemporary pre-opening that had a garden wing in front of the hotel with a pool and an octagonal marina in the back, and it looked pretty slick, but they ended up deciding to put it all out back. Uh, I also like the, you know, there's a slight change in the architecture of that, you know, 1969 or whatever version. It looked pretty cool. Uh, but, you know, it, it's essentially the same. 
yeah, there it, there are some slight differences. It looked more. Oh gosh, I'm gonna say like Mayan or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's what I like about it. Yeah. So out back we have two pools: a square pool and a circular pool. Out by the white sand beach on the right, we have volleyball courts, a kids' playground with its own splash pool. And in 1971, on the other side of the lakeside garden wing, uh, the one on the right, kind of facing the Wilderness Lodge, there was a putting green and croquet lawn. So, you know, a place for some execs to blow off some steam. Got to have that putting green. Absolutely. Uh, if you watched the Mouseketeers at Walt Disney World, you know that the Contemporary was a the tennis hub for the resorts, and the racket club was over towards where Bay Lake Tower is now. I could never really understand wanting to play tennis on a vacation, so I've decided we should just rent the boat. That sounds good. We head out to the marina, which has a boat rental, a beach shop, a quick service restaurant, and a bar. And I think of all the boat choices, I have the need for speed, so I got us two aqualarks to survey the waterways of the world. Yeah, you gotta love those aqualarks. Oh, yeah. Hopefully we won't beach them anywhere like I did in 1991. No. So. <laughs> Please, no. Let's not do that. Uh, after we get back, I thought we could hang out on the beach for a while and look out towards Treasure Island. I wonder what's going to go on out there. I know. It sounds intriguing. Uh, if we get hungry, we can head over to the Dock Inn at the marina for a light lunch. You know, sometimes they have music out there at night. I might hit up the Sandbar for a beer if the mood hits. Such great names. I know. Uh, after that, we can head to our rooms at last. As most of you know, the rooms of the Contemporary were fabricated at a factory off-site by U.S. Steel, who at one point owned the Contemporary. They were slid into the steel frame of the building. This process was very ahead of its time. It's kind of miraculous they did this before the era of big-time computing and completely didn't screw it up. I mean... They had to balance out the weight of the whole structure by putting these rooms in one at a time. It's kind of nuts. This method has come into use over the past decade or so, but only now. It's just impressive that they tried this in the early 70s. Yeah, pushing those Epcot ideas. It is wild, like you said, that they were able to do it without you know, all the resources that they would have today to model it and everything. Uh, U.S. Steel's interest quickly got bought out uh, in Roy Disney's last big deal before his death in late 1971. And the rooms, unfortunately, were not very popular and had to be redesigned fairly soon after their opening. I'm sure I'd be fine with either. Of course, the contemporary rooms would have the famous map of property. Lots of cool details on that one. But by 1973, it seems they, too, had the Mary Blair art on the walls. Very cool. I mean, like Absolutely. you said, it's fully themed all the way through I mean, you know, we could stay at the Mary Blair, uh, the Art of Mary Blair Resort. I would take it. Call it Tempo Bay. Totally. Absolutely. That's theming they should have absolutely kept. And, man, the motif, like when you find, like, the ephemera from the, those days, uh, it's all in that Mary Blair style. Like the like room service menus, the, uh, like, baby is sleeping thing you would put on the door had a little kind of papoose in a Mary right. Blair style. Uh, it... The little weird little anim cartoon animals, uh, it was everywhere you looked. Yeah, I found a letter from Mary Blair begging somebody who was asking her info about the mural to please send her a picture of the Do Not Disturb signs because she had worked on them and she uh, you know, oh, wanted wow. to see how they ended up. That's so great. 
Uh, after a little nap, we can catch the monorail around for a grand circle tour before it's time for dinner. We go back up to the room, change into our tuxes, and head up to the 15th floor to the top of the world. I can't help but wonder if it's named this in concert with all those Stifford's restaurants at the time that had various top-of-the-blank titles and were everywhere. I've recently discovered this. Uh, just a few of my favorites. Top of the Mart in Atlanta. It had a giant Mediterranean garden court. Top of the Flame in Detroit. And, of course, Top of the Town in Cleveland. Makes you wonder why Stouffer's didn't run this joint. Yeah, they had hookups and uh, with Disney. And I do wonder if that was a reference to those. Because, like oh. you said, they were quite an institution. Top of the World is a modly decorated supper club with the best views on property. Uh, tonight, the Top of the World Orchestra is warming up the crowd with a little dance music under the direction of Harry West. I make out a rug. Uh, but the top of the world used to host celebrities and, and lounge acts. And I'm happy to say that Howard Keel will be performing tonight, a few years pre-Dallas. I only hope he plays some selections from Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I know, I can't wait to see him belted out. No, he doesn't even need a mic. No, he does not rattle those windows. So Top of the World Restaurant was a Sunday brunch hotspot. And Michael, we will have to come back because they have Make Your Own Strawberry Shortcake, which I know will appeal to you. Oh, yeah. That is right up my alley. But for dinner, I may have to try the chicken breast with cheese sauce to see how they pull that off. Uh, mm. But that would mean I may be compromised having the chicken salad with peaches to start. Oh. A lot of chicken. <laughs> Although... Top of the World has its own signature salad dressing, which includes Worcestershire sauce, vinegar, anchovies, and MSG. I think I'll be in good hands there. How could that not be good? That sounds amazing. I, yeah, sign me up. That extra dash of MSG means you know it's good. I mean, I've considered making this since I found this recipe. I mean, how could that? I mean, that, that would just be amazing. That That's hilarious. Yeah, I bet it'd be good, man. I love me some Worcestershire sauce. So after we have eaten up at the top, taken in some fireworks on the observation deck with some drinks from the lounge, we head back down to the first floor and out to the marina for a little electrical water pageant. I thought about getting us a Chris Craft Aqua Home uh, to do a cocktail cruise, but I think I'd rather go back into the towers for a little time at the Fiesta Fun Center. Yes, always a good choice. This place was incredibly important to us as youths, Michael. Oh, you are not kidding. This was like heaven. This was everything you needed all in one spot, open 24-7, and enormous. That's right. You had a quick-service restaurant, a massive arcade, and during this time they had a movie theater that would show Disney classics. This facility would run into the wee hours. Like we said, it was open all night by the time we were using it. It had a wealth of entertainment options. On the wall, note the Three Caballeros mu mural by Disney legend Bill Justice, including a lady for Joe Carioca, I might add. I know. Oh, it's the best. I want those characters to become canonized. Uh, at this time, in addition to the theater, another big draw was the shooting gallery, which had a lot of animatronics. It was pretty legendary. A real hodgepodge of castle, swamp, and Wild West saloon, you name it. Uh, they had rows and rows of pinball and air hockey and a very odd machine called the Morgana, which was a fortune-telling machine that looked like an old ATM with 
face projection technology reminiscent of the haunted mansion. Very strange. Yeah, they always had like the most cutting edge, like whatever era you were in, they would have the most cutting edge like games that you could, wouldn't find anywhere else. Like I remember uh, when we were kids, they had that Sega Time. Yeah, remember what it's called? Like some sort of time travel video game that used like real video, but it was like a hologram. It was right. like real video off of a laser disc, I'm sure, uh, but projected as like a hologram which was nuts uh you can see this in mouseketeers at walt disney world as well from 77 right and uh there's a lot of pinball and skee-ball and stuff but there's a computer space one of the first arcade games kind of in the background there Uh, so that's kind of fun to see but yeah they would always have the latest and greatest and uh of course when i did college program and we would get off of epcot at two in the morning we would go here and back when you could just go places at Disney World without having a show ID or whatever. Uh, we would go and use the eight-person Daytona USA machine. Oh, so legendary. Yes. Which was a, a truly legendary experience and have big races in the middle of the night. So that was always fun. This place, very near and dear, as you said. I know. It was heartbreaking when, when it went away. I, you know, this was also the place we would come on night one of any Disney trip for a long time. Yeah, We would uh, go ride the monorails and go up to the Contemporary and just hang out and go ended, out, ended up at the uh, Food and Fun Center, as it was at that point. But So it was just so great. It was a, a mile above any other arcade on property. Oh, absolutely. Or any other one that I had ever been to, really. Yeah, that's true. So before we leave the Fiesta Fun Center, we can grab a cookie or some dessert on our way out and head off to our next monorail stop. But that's a little taste of Disney's flagship resort at the time. It's definitely the place to be, especially after dark. For those of you who have just joined us at the Contemporary Resort, greetings and welcome aboard the Walt Disney World local monorail system. During the trip, we request that everyone please remain seated and that there please be no eating, drinking, or smoking. Thank you. You're invited to return to the Contemporary Resort anytime for lunch, dinner, or just to do some exploring on your own. Simply have your hand stamped as you exit the Magic Kingdom and board one of the hotel monorails at the Magic Kingdom station. The body of water that you see to the right of our forward motion is the Seven Seas Lagoon. The Seven Seas Lagoon is a man-made creation that took three years and the removal of millions of cubic yards of earth to complete. 
Today, like the other lakes at Walt Disney World, it provides endless recreation enjoyment for our guests. In the evening, the Seven Seas Lagoon becomes the site of the electrical water pageant. Each night, King Neptune, serpents, dolphins, and other creatures of the deep float musically across the darkened waters in a 900-foot-long procession of fantasy. The electrical water pageant journeys across the Seven Seas Lagoon, through a cement channel, and onto Bay Lake, which lies beyond the towering A-frame of the Contemporary Resort Hotel. Coming up is the Polynesian Village Resort Hotel. Each night, guests enjoy luau feasts that are held along the sandy beaches of the Seven Seas Lagoon in Luau Cove. And inside the main building of the resort is a three-story tropical garden with cascading waterfall. Please remain seated until the monorail has come to a complete stop within the station. The doors will open automatically for you to the right of our forward motion. At that time, please lower your head, watch your step, and take all small children by the hand. Also, check around for all your personal belongings. Once again, this is the Polynesian Village Resort Hotel. Our next stop will be the Magic Kingdom. As we continue our journey from the Contemporary Resort to the Polynesian Village, we notice that things appear very different than what we're used to today. Instead of reaching all the way to the Transportation and Ticket Center, the Polynesian's grounds end abruptly with a putting green, where the so-called quiet pool now sits. You gotta keep those execs happy with mm -hmm. the putting green. Uh, what are now called the Tokilao, Moria, and Pago Pago longhouses have yet to be built, not to mention the Bora Bora bungalows. And uh, so there's a vast expanse of green separating the resort from the TTC. It really feels like an isolated island locale, a retreat. It's, it's very remote. And by the way, as we passed by the TTC, they're landscaping on the hill around the monorail station with its little diamonds coming out of the TTC building. Just beautiful. Looks so fresh. So fresh, so well landscaped. We pass over some topiary. That's right. Those are always fun to see down there uh, as as you pass by going to the Magic Kingdom or the resorts. A lot going on, a lot of landscaping. Uh, as we pull into the second floor monorail station, we note the combination of mid-century architecture with Exotica influences. This resort, like the Contemporary, was designed by Welton Beckett and Associates, along with the Disney Imagineers. Riding the wave of the mid-century obsession with all things Hawaiian and Polynesian, Disney had always planned for Walt Disney World to contain a resort with a South Seas theme. While the original plans called for a modern high-rise hotel tower surrounded by a number of longhouses arranged along narrow inlets, eventually they settled on the much more subdued layout we find here today. The resort, like the Contemporary, was built out of prefab units constructed on site. Unlike the Contemporary, where they would slide them into the structure, however, these units were basically just stacked upon each other to make the longhouses. So it's not something they used in later years for the subsequent longhouses, but at the start they would truck them over and just kind of basically stack them up like Lego uh, to create these longhouses. The resort opened along with the rest of Walt Disney World on October 1st, 1971, 
with 484 guest rooms and eight longhouses. The grand dedication ceremonies were held on October 24th with a massive luau celebration on the beach of the resort. The occasion was marked with a fireworks show and the debut of the electrical water pageant. Uh, Jeff, this is the event that sometimes shows up in photos with King Leonidas from Bedknobs and Broomsticks sitting on an enormous throne. I mean, yeah, of the top, easily in my top five, I wish I was there moments in Walt Disney World history. <laughs> I know. This was a huge event. Uh, like an, a, th a thousand people were there and the menu was sublime. And uh, then they, the like outrigger canoe guys showed up with uh, King Leonidas out of the dark, emerging from the dark to sit on his synergy, throne. always synergy. I, let me just say that the Polynesian is the rare instance of something getting kind of scaled down through its development and being better. I feel like. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. there's a lot of great ideas that were the Polynesian and its buildup, but I feel like what we got was just superb, and it's kind of the the lower version on the price tag. Yeah. And you think that tower would have been probably pretty spectacular, but would probably be pretty dated today. And that's right. Uh, it would just be, feel more like just a regular hotel than what it feels like now, which is, uh, you know, a really nice sort of mid century tiki fan experience, so to speak. Right. Disembarking the monorail, we enter the great ceremonial house on the Bayview Terrace, also known as the second floor. The first thing we hear is the rush of water. First thing we smell is that magical, indescribable smell that used to permeate the lobby. Jeff, we're talking about the waterfall. Yeah, this was a whole different environment. If you missed it, I hate it for you. It was, uh, it was just like going into another place. It really was. It made, uh, it really brought the room together, like they yeah. say. Um, it made this room a destination. Like I could, I would go over there just to exist in this space. Yeah. Um, a, a magnificent structure in the Polynesian lobby. It was there from 1971 until 2014. Uh, designed by imaginary legend Fred Jurger, it uh, featured towering palms, beautiful orchids, tropical ferns, uh, lots of rare flora, and uh, volcanic, you know, sculpted volcanic rock with waterfalls coming down. Oh, it's so fantastic. It smelled great. It was, it brought life to the lobby. Uh, you would just go and, you know, it was lined with kind of benches around the edge, and you could just sit there and hang out and enjoy. Yeah. I mean, it was in no ways practical from a crowd flow standpoint, but the uh, the atmosphere it brought was significant. I mean, <laughs> like you said, it, especially when they had the birds. I mean, it was just uh, it just felt like you were outside. It felt like you were somewhere else. You in were in the islands, and nobody yeah. did like like that fake volcanic rock better than Fred Jurger. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, it's just perfectly sculpted to be evocative. And oh, it was just the best. Like you said, it had tropical birds on hand for many years, uh, watching guests check in at the front desk. Uh, it really was one of the most spectacular elements in all of Walt Disney World. It was uh, one of my favorite places in the world. And uh, yeah, it was very, very nice. Uh, the rushing water has us a little hungry, so we pop into the Coral Isle Cafe, where Kona is now. 
It looks very different, though, fenced off with bamboo, way more 1960s than 1990s. This was at first essentially a coffee house for resort guests. Looking at menus from the time, you'll find such exotic delicacies as corned beef and cabbage and pastrami sandwiches. They had fried chicken. Uh, the kids' menu features tantalizing names like the Wahini Dancer, which is uh, spaghetti and meat sauce with Parmesan cheese. Huh. So the Wahinis, they like a, a little of the Italian, I guess. You can get a side of corn on the cob for 50 cents, which I thought was nice. And uh, interestingly, they offer both Coke and Pepsi. Wow. So you can have your choice. In the aisles, anything goes. I do have to note, however, that even at this early date, they offer something that was a favorite of mine two decades later, the Chicken Maori, a kind of Polynesian-y fried chicken sandwich. It was really good. I do believe this is one of the recipes I included in the appendix of my book. It's something I would love to see make a return because it was good. Uh, I'll also point out that uh, one of the menus I found for this restaurant, uh, a children's menu, lists its prices in the strangest way I've ever seen. The, the Wahini Dancer, for instance, is priced as four quarters, one dime. <laughs> the Luau Leader, a hamburger, is listed as four quarters. And the Tribal Warrior, a hot dog, is three quarters, one dime. Why? Must be groups of scamps who, you know, don't know how to how money works yet. <laughs> Just roaming the resort. Who knows? The Moochies of the world with their like change purse or their like little uh, paper boy yeah, that's right. change dispenser thing. Hey, mister, uh, how much does this cost? Four quarters? <laughs> a dime? Uh, yeah, I've never seen a menu do that before. So that, that was interesting. Of course, if we're in need of supplies, we can duck across to the other side of the great ceremonial house to pick up some sundries at Village Gifts and Sundries, a great store with great decor. If we need some real essentials, we can pop in next door at Trader Jack's Grog Hut, a great name for a great establishment. Man, so you're telling me we got the Spirit World and Trader, Trader Jack's Jack. Grog Hut for the Grog names Hut. of the liquor store. Man, they knew they knew how to sell it back then. That's uh, right. Village Gifts and Sundries also had Village Florists, another floral shop. I don't know who yeah. was buying all these flowers for people. Execs. I guess. Well, you, when you're going to spend all day at the putting green, you need to That's smooth right. things over with the wife <laughs> before you head out for dinner. So I guess exactly. that makes sense. Uh, before we head deeper into the resort, we should stop at the Papiete Bay Veranda, located where Ohana is now. And make reservations for tonight's show. The restaurant featured a French Polynesia theme with colonial decor, white shutters and overhead fans, lots of pastels. Yeah, it's named for the body of water its large windows face out on. Papiete Bay is the name of the part of the Seven Seas Lagoon where the Polynesian is located. Huh. So use that in your vernacular when you're heading to the world. The restaurant offered a combination of Polynesian and continental fare to match the French theme. It had a breakfast buffet, later known as Minnie's Minahune Breakfast, as well as a lunch buffet. Dinner, however, is another story entirely. Three times a night, the Kawaipono Polynesian Review takes the stage for a live show. Uh, it's, this is not the uh, Luau, which also uh, was 
happening at this time. This was a inside dinner show that would go on, and it's fancy too. Jackets are required. Oh, count me in. That sounds so be, great. Be prepared for pineapple and a pig. Of course, uh, tucked away in a corner of the Papier Bay veranda, closer to the windows than it sits today, is the Tambu Lounge. Now, at this point, if you visualize where Ohana is today, you know, the big circular kind of fire pit the, the where they have all the skewers and stuff. Basically, everything to the right of that, everything to the east of that, was the Tambu Lounge. Uh-huh. Uh, all the way to the front of the building. Uh, this uh, intimate locale features, it was said, cocktails, conversation, and Ramon Bueno on piano. <laughs> Let me tell you, uh, if your name is Ramon Bueno, there's no way you're getting out of being a cocktail lounge piano player. No, no, not at all. I mean, it was it was meant to be. That is, and Ramon. Uh, you know, I was looking back. He gets name checked a lot, so he must have been a little bit of a institution there. How could he not be? I mean, with a name like that and a uh, venue like that, come on, this is some kismet. Absolutely, and, and this place open till two a.m. I would never leave. No, no, just gotta stay there and just see what sit, happens. Listen to listen to Ramon tickle the ivories and. Have a, have a back scratcher or a, who knows what else. Uh, downstairs at the lobby level, things really get funky. Uh, the first thing you might notice is the tile work. Very, very green and very, very blue tiles on the floor. Uh, you can take a seat on some very, very blue high-backed chairs. This was all very vivid in 1970s style. Uh, you can sit and watch the water fall down the volcanic centerpiece. Across the way, behind a wall of bamboo, is the South Seas Dining Room, offering a nightly buffet of prime rib and Polynesian entrees. Uh, in later years, uh, these, these were sort of meeting rooms, conference rooms. Uh, I had a boss one time who uh, got married in one of those rooms. Hey. So, uh, it did not last, however. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so if you want to pick up a newspaper... Stop by News from Civilization, a combination newsstand and gift shop. It used to be one of my favorite places to stop in the resort. All sorts of gifts. In later years, this looked kind of like a Golden Girls gift shop. Yes. There was a lot of Polynesian Village in the uh, 80s that looked like the Golden Girls. It's like they came in and did the interior design. Coral Isle Cafe, in fact. Yeah, it really did. Coral Isle, Papiete Bay, this shop, mm-hmm. it, big Golden Girls vibe. But yeah, back in the day, lots of um, treasure craft souvenirs, and uh, you know, it was always exciting to get the magazines. I, you know, thinking about the news, I remembered in the up until probably the late nineties, if you stayed at the Disney Resort, you'd get a free paper in your room every. That's morning. right. That's right. And uh, I remember when that went away, people were, but it was always exciting because it was the Sentinel. So you would get to read like the comics from out of town, like see what, you know, see what the out of town comics are like. And then, uh, you know, we were down there on vacation once when they announced the Disney decade. That's correct. We got the newspaper with all the details in that. So uh, that was super exciting as well. Delivered right to your hotel door. Good times. 
Taking a left at News from Civilization, which many years later would become a Wyland gallery, we take another turn and enter what is known as the Outrigger Assembly House. This area is taken up by a number of shops. Where there are bathrooms now was a women's wear shop called the Polynesian Princess. You can imagine how swanky this was. Uh, Deadhead is a men's wear shop called Robinson Crusoe Esquire. If you need to pick up a jacket for tonight's festivities upstairs. I'm calling a missed opportunity here. If they're going to call one Robinson Crusoe Esquire, they need to call the other one the Pineapple Princess. Yes. Totally. Totally. I think we're going to say it should be uh, Friday. I'm thinking of Robin Crusoe Esquire. I can't remember if she was Friday or Wednesday in that, but uh, <laughs> it could be themed to her. Uh, but yeah, Pineapple Princess is the obvious choice. Anyway, you travel down the hallway. We wind up at Captain Cook's Hideaway. As the guidebook said, this was a place for guests desirous of a dark rendezvous and the strains of a haunting guitar. Oh, my. I know. Uh, there was also an outside patio area romantically bathed in soft candlelight. So oh. this was a rendezvous indeed. Captain Cook's was the domain of Saltwater Express, also yes. known as Stratton and Christopher, who would perform a show of comedy, song, and personality. <laughs> this personality shows <laughs> yeah you gotta you gotta have that personality that's what really sells at kids uh, these guys are really a staple of early walt disney world resort entertainment performing both here and at the lake buena vista shopping village they keep things going here till 2 a.m a real swinging scene uh -huh. and this is one of the places that cast members of the time really loved would really hang out and uh saltwater express were the institution uh, if you need snacks, you can pick them up next door at the Barefoot Snack Bar, featuring sandwiches and cool drinks. And in later years, these establishments would be combined. The cocktail lounge aspect was dropped. It would later be known as Captain Cook's Snack and Ice Cream Company. Uh, today it's just Captain Cook's. But this was a scene for a funny episode from our youth. <laughs> That's right. One of the couple of times we got to stay at the Polynesian, too. Yeah, a rare treat. So this would have been super early 90s, uh, late 80s or super early 90s. And we had had dinner, I believe, at the Tangaroa Terrace. Yes, um, which was a whole other thing. Which had gone, it was kind of weird. It was um, kind of showing its age at the time. And yes. Yes. The service that night was not great. It was really, really slow. I don't know if they were busy or what. But I remember, like, I wanted dessert. We wanted dessert. But they did, were doing the thing that restaurants used to do a million years ago, even before our time, of having sort of an old lady wheel around a dessert cart to, like, show you the desserts. And, uh... I just remember this little old lady wheeling around the dessert cart and it was just never going to come. And so our parents were like, we are done. We are not doing dessert. And I was in a mood. I was <laughs> stroppy because we weren't getting dessert. And so uh, we went back to the room and I was having a pout because we didn't have dessert. And you and dad went out. We're like, well, we'll go to Captain Cook's and get some ice cream. And I didn't want ice cream. I don't know what I wanted, but I didn't want that. You wanted the dessert cart. I wanted the dessert cart. I wanted an old lady to bring it to me. I That's how I like my dessert. So uh, what happened at, when you and dad went looking for ice cream? Well, we went to order a, you know, 
ice cream to share. There was one on the menu called the Maui Wowie. So we're like, sure, uh, without reading too much about it. So, you know, like <laughs> kind of expecting a, you know, banana split of some variety. And uh, once we received it, I remember dad saying, go get mom and Michael. We need help to eat this thing. So you come like running to the hotel room and like dad says come Which quick. Was far away. It was yeah, like yeah. right by the TTC. I'll never forget that. Yeah, I think we were in Moria because I remember yeah. that. Um yeah, dad says come quick. So we like go running back. And this thing is like if you got one of the giant clamshells from twenty thousand leagues under the sea. Because <laughs> it was served in a giant clamshell. It's the same idea as like a kitchen sink. But was more. Yes. It was a giant clamshell full of I don't know how much ice cream and stuff. <laughs> and so my my pout quickly ended when it was overwhelmed by the bounty of Yeah, it's like they thing. poured the dessert cart into a giant clam. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which uh, makes everything better. So that's, true. Yeah, that's, that's true. what Captain Cooks will always make me think of. The Maui Wowie. <laughs> aptly named it truly truly yeah that was that was quite an experience uh, back in 1974 however if we head down the hallway where trader sam's is now we find the mouseketeer clubhouse which was the resort's original child care facility and just outside in a brand new expansion we can get a trim up at the ali inui barber shop yes the, you know the ladies they're uh <laughs> their wigs may have settled in the uh florida damp <laughs> So uh, they can get primped at the Pretty Wahimi Beauty Shop. Where they put spaghetti on your head. <laughs> I guess so. I guess that's all they had to pull from. They knew they're wahinis. So, that, yeah, get a, a, a spaghetti, uh, you know, facial mask. Uh, I love this era when the resorts really had everything you needed all in one place. Well, yeah, in addition to this kind of being a time and place thing, uh, the place is quite, you know, they were out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so you would think they would need to have all these facilities on property where people could get stuff done. Of course, right. you know, you ran a, a more formal kind of world back then than there is now. But, yeah, it's so cool. I mean, they, they had salons when I was there working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, cast members would go and... Uh, the public would go, it's, it's pretty wild. Pretty wild stuff. Of course, if we wanted to, we could see the nightly Kawipono Polynesian Review in Luau Cove. Uh, Luau Cove, pretty freshly added. It used, the Luau used to take place on the beach, but they built the cove, so it would be protected from the weather. The fun there starts off with sipping Mai Tais, Fruit Punch, or Island Delight, which I don't know what that is, uh, on the Terrace Garden patio, before helping ourselves to a dinner of Polynesian ribs and Okanaka beef shrimp and vegetables and fried rice so good, mm. good stuff uh, the review features symbolic songs and dances from the south seas including the samoan knife dance where huh, 
a young islander skillfully whirls sharp blades in an exciting, hypnotizing display. Exciting. Uh, we learn the quote customs of courting and self-protection. What I don't know if okay. it's re related or not. Uh, witness the delightful Samoan slap dance, and uh, hear the Hawaiian wedding song. This is very blue Hawaii. Oh, very blue Hawaii. Yes, and Lou Alcove also hosted to Sunday church services up until recently. I mean. It, it, they were also holding them when I was there at Walt Disney World in 2000. So. That is true. This was another, uh, this was a thing that would always be in the Burma guys that would blow my mind was that they would have on-site church services. They would have uh, a sort of non-denominational Protestant service, and then they would have a Catholic service. And I think the Catholic service uh, birthed the Mary Queen of the Universe shrine, uh, which would be opened later. Uh that's very interesting. Okay. Well, there you go. So, yeah, uh, you know, back when there was nothing, I mean, really between Orlando and Lake Buena Vista, there was nothing. Right. So right. I remember when they built that Mary Queen of the Universe. So people, I guess, finally had a place to go. But uh, we don't have time to stop because we're headed to the eastern winds. The iconic Chinese junk docked at the Polynesian Marina. Cocktails are served on deck there nightly at 6. Mm. cocktails going around and I don't mind right. or we could jump aboard a steam paddle wheeler for nightly sunset and moonlight cruises four times a night a ship leaves the Polynesian for an hour and a half cruise with live entertainment and cocktails it's a steal at three dollars a trip now that count me in uh, times however many I would do yeah. that often live cruise entertainment four times cocktail a night, cruise man. come on yeah just cruising around. That's something, you know, I'm really surprised they don't do these days because that would be nice. That's right. Uh, for a more private rendezvous, we could book a private dinner cruise on a Chris Craft yacht or Aqua Home. Yes. For $25 a person, you get a two and a half hour cruise featuring a shish kebab or steak dinner and complimentary cocktails. Very romantic. Or if you just want a drink, you can charter a cocktail cruise on the same ships for just $10 a head. Take somebody out for a spin, have some cocktails, enjoy yourself. Regardless of whether you take them up on these options, if we stand looking out at Beachcomber Isle in Papayete Bay, we might see some waves issuing from Dick Nunes' fabled wave machine, washing ashore at Surfrider Beach, where the wedding pavilion sits today. And if we haven't had enough aquatic fun, we can return tomorrow to the marina to rent an aqualark, a pedal boat, a float boat, or any number of sailing ships, or even one of those fabled bob-around boats. Uh, you know, they have their own AM-FM radios. Those boats always look like they were really fun. You got the little circular couch deal going on. If they don't on. break down. If they don't break down, it's good times. Of course, uh, if we have a bunch of friends along, for a dollar a head, we can rent a real outrigger canoe and head out into Papiete <laughs> Bay just like the local navigators might. Imagine this. <laughs> Just hit, hit, hit the hit the water in your outrigger. Uh, just be sure not to run into one of the lagoon ski shows. These were an odd staple of the early '70s out on the Seven Seas Lagoon, viewed mostly from the beach adjacent to the Magic Kingdom entrance. They featured quote trick and precision skiing, comedy acts, high flying kite skiers, see Pluto, Goofy, Donald Duck, and other Walt Disney characters on skis. So, man, there are some weird photos of this. There's a yes. shot of Goofy and Pluto fishing from a pontoon boat with kind of an outhouse on it. 
And uh, while Mr. Smee jumps off a pirate ship in a jet ski in the background. Yes. I have uh, no idea what was going on in these shows. And there's some video of it, the Magic of Walt Disney World. There's that guy, like, skiing around on his keister. And, uh, but really great uh, Walt Disney World flags the skiers had with the, yeah. uh, the, the D and Mickey head logo. Cool stuff. My only guess was like this was their attempt to like have everything. They wanted to have their Cypress Gardens too. Yeah, it was Florida. Florida. Yes, Florida. You expect that kind of thing in Florida. So. Right. You expect Mr. Smee to jump jet skis from pirate ships. Yeah, I can't sense. explain. Yeah. As we make our way back to the monorail, we ponder the future of the resort. In just a few years, in 1978, the resort will see its first major expansion, which will add not only new longhouses, but also the Tangaroa Terrace with its uh, nice tiki support pillars inside. Uh, very nice. And the adjoining Moana Mickey's Fun Hut Arcade. Mm. And, of course, the years that followed brought even more sweeping changes. But as for now, we can just kick back, relax, grab an Orlando Sour from the Tambu Lounge. Sounds good. And enjoy the relaxing atmosphere of the aisles in a lush lobby where the waterfalls run day and night. <laughs> Of course, we can't truly finish our trip around Seven Seas Lagoon without mentioning some resorts that fell along the way, uh, unbuilt resorts that we missed out on. And a couple of these just are kind of painful to think about. The original plan for Walt Disney World called for three additional resorts, two around the Seven Seas Lagoon, uh, one of which was the Venetian Resort which has a large square building that borrows heavily from the Doge's Palace in St. Mark's Square, also at World Showcase, and two towers reminiscent of the Campanile in St. Mark's, booking a harbor, with the requisite water features being ringed in by low-level buildings. Michael, this would have been a natural for Disney and what they were trying to do with water recreation here at Walt Disney World. Oh, that's right. This is, it's a natural of a theme. It would be a great aesthetic. Uh, it's a natural site for a resort there between the Contemporary and the TTC. And this is something they would return to time and again, uh, you know, in the original sort of 1969, 1970, 1971. Uh, they had the idea for the Venetian. Uh, this is something that would come back in the 80s as the Mediterranean. And that went again until like the sort of early 90s. And uh, it kind of goes back between the Venetian and the Mediterranean, but they kind of change, uh, change the name back and forth. And the design changes a lot over the years too, but 
Uh, this is something that, it, you know, even when we were kids in the early 90s with the Disney decade, this was going to be part of that. Uh, it had been announced again, and uh, we were very curious about. Yeah, I remember going down there, and, you know, you'd go right over it. There's like a straightaway of the monorail built for, you know, a monorail stop. And uh, you would look, and they would have done a little site prep, and you'd be like, oh, cool, they're, they're working out there. You'd see yeah. trucks out there and everything. And the, the urban legend was always that, that there was a sinkhole out there. Right. When it never happened, when it repeatedly never happened, the, the sort of buzz on the internet became that there was a sinkhole. But thankfully, uh, we have someone who knows uh, to ask about that. Bob Holland worked on the Walt Disney World Resort for many, many years. He will be our interviewee for our next episode. Uh, but uh, when we spoke to him, we had to ask him about the Mediterranean and why that never happened. Well, there's many versions. I mean, there there are versions that go back before me. I mean, it was always meant to be a hotel site, and there were some sketches and some things done. But I don't think there was anything too seriously done before the first Mediterranean that, that I worked on. I actually have a picture of the model here in my office. Um, oh, nice. Michael Eisner was enamored with working with famous architects. Um, Michael knew a lot about design. He was very, um, very hands-on. I mean, when, when we would do a typical hotel project with Michael, we would probably do at least, in, in the early days, at least a half a dozen detailed design presentations to Michael, starting with the basic layout and architecture and concept and storyline, ultimately down to rugs and coverlets and wallpaper and paint colors and everything. He wanted to be that involved. Um, ultimately, he got to the point that he couldn't be that involved anymore, but that was typical for the first, I don't know, five to 10 years of, of the Michael regime. And anyway, he was very enamored with working with, with big name architects, which I think is also one of the things that the development company allowed him to do because Otherwise, the hotels would have been designed primarily by Imagineering. And, and again, there had been some criticism that you should be, particularly by people like Gary Wilson and the Bass Brothers, that you should be having designers design your hotels, that design hotels as living, not theme parks. And, and so with a development company, it allowed us to go to outside designers. And then in, in Michael's world he was very interested in working with the big name architects of the time the frank gary's and the bob stearns and on and on and on and there was a gentleman he's still alive his name is antoine predock he ultimately designed the santa fe hotel in paris which i finished um, but antoine was a real hot property at the time and he designed the the mediterranean um, we spent quite a bit of money. We, we took it all the way through construction documents. We actually bid the project. Wow. Um, we had some challenges with the design because Antoine likes to design in concrete. He's sort of the antithesis of Main Street and Bob Stern. And, and there were a number of sort of challenges of trying to get Antoine in line with with what Disney would accept. But anyway, the project got designed. I, it was a very exciting project. Whether it was Disney, I don't know. We'll never know. Uh, and then the Gulf War broke out, the first Gulf War. And the problem was we had, that was like 900 rooms plus a convention hotel. 
up for convention center where Amphitheridion had a convention center edition going and the Yacht Beach Club had a convention center biz, uh, piece going. And ultimately, the Walt Disney Company just decided that given the Gulf War and the uncertainty of travel and things like that, that they didn't want to risk doing another hotel. So it stopped. Um, we actually moved some dirt on the site. People at one, they're a little hard to see now because they're covered by large weeds and trees and things. But um, there were there were mounds of earth that were brought there. They actually were brought from Port Orleans when they had excess fill. We had it hauled up to the Mediterranean site because we needed the fill. And that's as far as we got. We stopped the project. I remember at the time, uh, because this this was one thing that had, had been announced publicly, snooping from the monorail as we went by to see if, see if dirt was being moved. And I, at one point there was you know, a very, as construction sites will do with the, um, you know, just like two by fours nailed together, I guess, kind of a gate there, um, at the site, just seeing just any rough amount of dirt being moved was very exciting. Yeah. Well, the, the two by fours there were to keep the, the trucks hopefully from hitting the monorail beam. Oh, well, that makes sense. Well, so what you're saying about the Mediterranean and how far it got along, I guess, uh, goes to answer one of my other questions, which was about the site itself. You know, that there have always been so many rumors about that site because nothing has ever been built there. So it is a buildable site. Yeah, I mean, I've seen some rumors online that wasn't buildable, which when I see those, I jump in and say, no, that's not the, it's, it's very buildable. Like all sites in Florida, it has some challenges. There's, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, when that project died somewhere towards the end, I, I would say this was probably in the, uh, I don't know, 2003, four period, maybe. We did another version. We actually worked with the architect that did Grand Floridian, and we did a thing called the Venetian. That was a working title. Of course, by then there was a Venetian in Las Vegas, so we probably would have had to change the name. <laughs> but they did an Italian-esque uh, Venetian. We were going to cut canals that would tie to the Seven Seas Lagoon, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's a very nice design. Um, we basically took it through concept, early schematic. And again, there just was not... Uh, the challenge with that site, it, it's the last great site on Seven Seas Lagoon. It really demands, in most people's mind, a very high-end hotel. You mm -hmm. shouldn't be putting pop there. You shouldn't be putting, you know, all-star there. Um, it should be another Grand Floridian or maybe even better. And that's what we were designing. But the company just in those days was concerned about what the hotel market was going to be at the high end. So they, we could never get it to go forward. Uh, this was so cool. This was a big unanswered question for me. You know, that was when, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the Mediterranean ran in, into our early internet usage and the first like Disney uh, rumors that we'd read on rec arts, Disney or whatever yeah. they were. <laughs> but, yeah, totally. Um, so it was cool to, you know, hear an interview with a guy who was around here during all these uh, amazing, you know, huge development that Disney was working, pouring into hotels and all that stuff. It's a great interview that Michael did. So I'm excited to hear all of it uh, in a couple of weeks. Lots more scoop. One site that was used uh, was this big square plot of land uh, that the Grand Floridian now sits on. 
But uh, this was originally going to be the Asian resort. This was something that was promised up until about 1973, until it kind of went away in the wake of oil crises and other things. Uh, it was similar to the Venetian in its uh, layout, with a uh, central building surrounded by a square of lower buildings. It uh, shared the A-frame roofs with slanted woodwork on top with the Polynesian. And it had a supper club at the top of the central building, a la the contemporary. And, uh, you know, this is why the the road that goes around there now, I, I think it's different now, but it was originally called Asian Way for many, many decades. That's right. They finally changed it to Floridian Way after they built the Grand Floridian. But, man, this one seemed like it was even closer than the Venetian to being built. They had the land ready. It was ready to go, and uh, just imagining this as a counterpoint to the Polynesian. In a weird way, it's just kind of, uh, you know, you got the A-frames all the way around, and, and the roofs, seeing the, the outlines of the roofs change between the Polynesian and that. There's another Wilton Beckett design. Oh, it just, and right beside Adventureland, too, just having those two together to interact off each other would have been magnificent. Not to mention, you know, it's a lot of, Thai influence, so you would think they would have some proto-Thai, you know, I'm sure it would have been some weird Americanized version of Thai food in the 70s, but still, a Thai restaurant supper club, please. Oh, yeah, today it would be great if they had, you know, modernized it, the cuisine as they have in other places, it would be a choice destination. This is one I really am sad didn't make it. Uh, I prefer this theme to the Grand Floridian by leaps and bounds. I, I think it looks spectacular. The hotel looked like it would be great. And as you said, this one came closest to happening. It was going to be the next one to be built. Uh, they were aiming to have it open in about 1973, but it kind of kept getting pushed back. And then uh, everything else happened, and they wound up getting occupied with Epcot. It didn't happen. And then by the time they got around to building resorts again in the early 80s, they had come up with the idea for the Grand Floridian. So this is sadly sadly a lost resort yeah you gotta wonder if it, if that u.s steel uh, buyout wouldn't have happened maybe they could have got it, gotten it done in short order but man you would love to see it there and it got reworked several times over but uh, notably a an, an early 80s version kind of has a they went a different direction they did a, a kind of india white indian palace motif uh, another interesting looking resort a little bit more elaborate and that would have been interesting, you know, there by the jungle cruise. You wonder if they would have let it so you could see out of the jungle cruise to there, but, Oh, that would be nice. That would be, uh, that would be a really good back, much like, uh, the contemporary was for Tomorrowland back in the day, having that as a backdrop for Adventureland that you could see off in the distance would be really, really cool. Yeah. A number of different designs for this one and each of them very intriguing. And uh, we came across another resort. I'm not sure if this was uh, destined for the Seven Seas or not, but but we should mention it. Yeah, this is something that I just come across some Herb Ryman art for, um, I believe, from the early 80s. Uh, this was something called the Carioca Resort. Yeah. And this uh, had a uh, Brazilian theme, you know, Joe Carioca being the mascot of the resort. 
And this would have been really neat. I, I don't know how far along this got, if this was just, a, you know, any of the million other ideas that just get sort of thrown out willy-nilly and never go anywhere. Uh, but this could have been very cool. I love that they had a, a design of the logo, which, of course, had Joe Karaoke on it. Uh, One Rendering has, like, a traditional colonial-era Portuguese street with a large modern glass pane high rise behind it. So just imagining that and kind of on the water, kind of imitating, you know, a few of the Brazilian things, you know, I lived in Brazil last year and uh, I just uh, really living there and seeing it just made me really want the world showcase pavilion and throw in the hotel too. I just think it, they, the themes would be Disney would do them very well. And they never have really approached it except for an animation, which they did great, as we know. <laughs> Absolutely. That is a, a theme that they have not touched in uh, you know, theme design. And it's, oh, it lends itself so well to yeah. uh, you know, a tropical kind of resort. Oh, it would be spectacular. And especially you know, if you did it even as a period piece like, uh, like 1940s. That's Rio. right. Oh, how amazing would that be? So that is definitely some untapped potential there. And, you know, I don't know if Herb was working on the clock or off when he came up with this, but uh, it was a good idea and uh, would be a lot of fun to see. So, you know, you never know what's what's back in the files of the unbuilt resorts. That's right. The more I learn, the more I realize that that, you know, what they say, the good ideas never die. It's very true. A lot of these ideas are, of things that get built are very old. So fingers crossed, maybe someday. Yeah, I know. Keep an eye out. So that about wraps up our seven seas lagoon portion of the vacation kingdom but you know michael we had originally said that we were going to do all of the resorts of the early 70s and we couldn't fit them into one episode could we no the vacation kingdom is too vast to be contained in just one episode absolutely so later in this year we may have to visit another favorite body of water of ours and head out to bay lake um so we'll keep you informed on that yeah, there's lots going on out there in Bay Lake. Absolutely. Oh my a, lot, a lot to be seen and a lot to do. That is so true. As we said, we have Bob Holland coming up in a couple of weeks. And Michael, next month, where are we headed to on this, our 50th anniversary celebration? Well, next month, we are going to get back into the park, do things the way they were meant to be done, take a stroll down the middle of Main Street, USA. Walking right down the middle of it. Right down the middle. Uh, well, I'm excited about that. Uh, Michael, do we have any new Patreon subscribers this month? Yes, we do. We have a bumper crop of new followers this month. It has been a very active month for the Patreon. We did have our first live stream event yes. for <laughs> our members of the Silver Level Order of the Chili Bowl. Um, Indeed. We had our sort of experimental version of a live stream to see if we could make it happen. And we eventually we did. So that was That's exciting. Right. And I'm very excited about this going forward. I mean, it's going to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. So our, yes, thank you to our uh, new members, uh, Michael, 
Henry, Yvonne, the librarian, very mysterious, and Kathleen. Thank you all for joining. Uh, we really appreciate it, as always, and uh, it's really helping us out, helping us to do more, and uh, we hope to have more goodies for you soon. So, if you want to sign up and be a part of that, please check us out at patreon.com slash USA. Please sign up. See what's there. And if you want to get in touch with us, our email is podcast at progresscityusa.com. So send us a note. Let us know what you'd like to hear. Let us know what you're enjoying. And if you get a chance, please rate us on your podcast platform. Leave a review. But uh, that'll about wrap it up for this month. We'd like to thank you all again for listening. We will see you in two weeks with Bob Holland and next month with Main Street USA. So from all of us here at Progress City, we wish you well and look forward to seeing you again real soon. Take care. Right now, it's time to go. Remember... Everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.